This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 365. And so I was awake for 72 hours. I was doing rehab on that house, getting it enough, getting it good enough to move into. So it's not like I went into those situations saying, hey, great, I want to do this. That's the ideal for my family. But I had to look, the short-term suffering was going to pay off in the long-term. And both those situations worked out. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Hey, what's going on, everyone? My name is Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with co-host of the year, Mr. David Green. Congratulations on winning co-host of the year at the Bigger Pockets podcast awards. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. The competition was stiff. I'm very <laughs> glad I was able to pull this thing out. Um, I credit, I credit my mentor Jocko Willink for teaching me the principles that it takes to, to win, <laughs> to win. <laughs> Speaking of Jocko. So today's episode, we're going to jump right into it pretty quickly today because today's guest is Jocko and Jocko is uh, Jocko, Jocko Willink is one of my favorite authors of all time. One of my favorite thought leaders. I'm, I don't know, David and I are both pretty obsessed with Jocko. He's a uh, Amazing. So Jocko is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer who was the commander of the task unit Bruiser in the Battle of Ramadi in Iraq. Uh, Jocko's unit became one of the most highly decorated special operations unit in the Iraq war. His books like Extreme Ownership and the, the Dichotomy of Leadership uh, go like deep into like different war stories and how they apply to business. And we've talked about his, his book Extreme Ownership a lot here on the show. And so we go into a lot of stuff today. Uh, he's also the host of the Jocko podcast, co-founder and CEO of Echelon Front, uh, which is a, a consulting business for business leaders. Uh, he's got a new book out there called Leadership Strategies and Tactics, a field manual. And I read it over the last 24 hours and it is unbelievably good. I want to recommend every single person who listens to the show goes and gets a copy of that book. And of course, we have links in the show notes on all that good stuff at biggerpockets.com. So I show 365. And before we get into the interview, though, let's get to today's in the in the voice of Jocko, today's quick Quit tip. tip. He's got a much more mas- masculine voice than, well, than either he, than David Brandon, or I. No, I don't know. Frank, <laughs> give him a run for his money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today's quick tip. David, it's on you. Today's quick tip is you're going to notice that we talk about this in the show with Jocko. And I need for everybody to understand how monumentally important it is. It is that your ego is not your friend, right? And that extreme ownership, which we refer to as taking ownership of everything that goes wrong and looking at what role did you play in that and how can you do it better? So Brandon and I talked to Jocko uh, pretty extensively about this concept. And one of the ways it comes up is with real estate investors. Brandon and I get this all the time. I want to invest in real estate, but my property manager wasn't as good as I thought he'd be. The contractor messed up. There's no good deals out there. I bought a house and it turns out this thing was wrong. And therefore real estate is a ripoff and you shouldn't do it. That's a terrible attitude to have. You're much better off if you look at what you could have done different, picked a better contractor, researched the deal better, did a little more due diligence, and then improved on the next time around. You're going to hear examples from Jocko in today's podcast about people that have embraced this and the monumental difference that it made in their life. So if you don't remember anything else from today's show, remember this idea of extreme ownership and you should probably go buy the book. There you go. All right. Nicely off the cuff, a quick tip today. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? 
actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I dot com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now, through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? (laughs) It's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. And now I want to just jump right into this interview because you guys are going to be blown away by Jocko. He talks about so much good stuff today, everything from leadership skills to extreme ownership, like that whole that whole concept, how it applies to real estate investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go through a lot of uh, his real estate story. Actually, he does some real estate as well. So we go through a little bit of that uh, and just just stuff that applies to every single person who either leads a team or leads a any kind of like ambitious goal, like real estate investing or whatever. You're going to learn a ton of stuff about that. And without further delay, let's get to it. Our interview with Jocko Willink. All right, Jocko, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. This has been uh, a dream of mine for the last several years uh, to have you on here. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Sorry it took so long. Been busy, just like you guys are. Nah, that's awesome. No, we're, we're, we're going to have a, a good time today. So I want to go through, you know, in, in the introduction, I explained a little bit about who you are uh, and what you've done, but I want to go in kind of the beginning of your story on what was like pre-military Jocko? I mean, like, what was that like? Who were you? Uh, what kind of kid were you before you joined the military? Well, I always kind of wanted, I always wanted to be in the military. I always wanted to be some kind of commando. I was running around in the woods. I was putting mud on my face. I was turning every stick that I could find into a weapon. And so that's kind (laughs) of how I grew up. But I was also a a very rebellious kid. 
And so, you know, I was listening to hardcore music and heavy metal music and, you know, getting into fights and just doing kind of dumb stuff. It wasn't really focused in school. And I just thought the whole time, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm just going to go in the military. And that's what I ended up doing. Got done with, with high school, enlisted in the Navy, and that ended up being the perfect place for me. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change anything about my military career at all. I mean, other than obviously losing guys in combat, but you know, the, the career that I had was, was awesome. And why, why did you choose Navy? I liked the water and I heard that the SEAL teams, you know, was, was a maritime component of special operations. So I figured if I could be a, a commando in the water, that's even better. You know, you've mentioned before, I've heard you say that when you got into the military, it just made sense. You had the structure that might not have been there. And what you kind of were looking for was a direction. You had all this energy, but you didn't know where to put it. And the military is very simple. They, they basically give you the floor plan. Hey, this is what you do. Just go do it. You don't have to be creative and figure things out. Can you describe a little bit of what the feeling was like where you knew this is where I'm supposed to be? I belong here. Well, I think I went through the same kind of initial shock of boot camp that everybody goes through where all of your freedoms... Mm-hmm. All of your freedoms and all your privacy are gone. So that takes about probably 12 to 24 hours to say, okay, I get it. I, I understand what's happening. And pretty much after that, I was, and even while that was going on, I, I was kind of into it, man. I was, <laughs> I was, I'd been waiting, you know, and so I was ready and it didn't take long for me to recognize the fact that I had a blank slate. So all the dumb stuff I'd done as a kid was gone. Didn't mm. matter. No one cared what my background was. No one cared who my parents were. No one cared what my grades were. No one cared about any of that. It was do what you're supposed to do and you'll progress. And so as soon as I figured that out, which was, like I said, very quickly, I got on board and started trying to started trying to be a good military individual. And when I got the SEAL teams, I tried to be a good SEAL. The reason I ask is there's a lot of people that want to get into real estate investing. They're not happy where they are. And so they're kind of like flying in orbit around this whole entrepreneurship idea, but they don't know how to get all the way in there and they don't know if they should. And I really like that you pointed out that you didn't fit in with the world that you kind of were living in before you were getting into trouble. You just probably needed a place to like test who am I? And you're trying to answer that question and getting into fights was the closest thing you could find. And then when you found the environment of the military, it all made sense to you. And there's a lot of people that are in their jobs feeling the same way. They know they have creative ideas. They know they have things they want to do, but their job is to sit there and look at that spreadsheet and put in those numbers, not to come up with a new marketing plan. And when you find it, if, if they could find what you described when you entered the military, that's something people should absolutely grab a hold of and say, okay, I need to pursue this harder. I definitely think that if you can find something that you enjoy doing, you should you should try, try and do that as much as you can. And, and I also think that you have to recognize the fact that you're going to do if you're in, if you're going through life as a normal human being, you're going to have to do some things that you don't want to do. And that's OK, too. You know, even when you talk about real estate, you know, I was always trying to buy houses and I was always buying you know, the old strategy. And not that I did this purposely because I, I wasn't really smart enough to figure this out, but you know, you know, the strategy of you buy the worst house in the nicest neighborhood that you can afford, you know, buy the worst house on the block. So I was doing that not because I wanted the worst house or not because it was a long-term strategy, because but because in the areas I wanted to live, the only house I could afford happened to be the worst house on the block, which meant I was often moving into houses that were barely livable. I mean, the first couple houses that I bought out in California were unlivable when I bought them. As a matter of fact, the first house that I bought in California, when I brought my wife there, 
I mean, she wanted to walk away from the deal. There was the person had been collecting uh, chicken wishbones. You know what a chicken? You know what a wishbone is inside yeah. of a chicken. So the person had been collecting these chicken wishbones, and they were all hanging on strings above the kitchen sink. I mean, and I'm talking probably <laughs> probably fifty chicken wing bones in this. The the uh, the counter in the kitchen was made of wood. So. What, what that meant, it was severely rotted out. It smelled. It was gross. There was this disgusting, deep maroon shag carpet that was all worn down to the mat. And, and I, you know, I'm going through this walkthrough with my wife. My wife is like just she wants to walk away from the deal. And I just had to say, listen, I'll be in there. I'll get it livable. And, and that's what I did on that house. The next house that I bought in California, same thing. It was unlivable when I bought it. I had to go in there. And I remember I had 72 hours. We had renters moving into the first house I bought in California. And I had 72 hours to get my new house, air quotes around new house, because it was anything but new. <laughs> I had 72 hours to prepare that thing to move my wife and my two daughters into. Mm -hmm. And so I was awake for 72 hours. I was doing rehab on that house, getting it enough, getting it good enough to move into. So it's not like I went into those situations saying, hey, great, I want to do this. That's the ideal for my family. But I had to look, sh the, the short-term suffering was going to pay off in the long-term. And both those situations worked out. Man, that's such a truth of life is, is so many people I see out there who want anything, I mean, anything, whether it's fitness, whether it's real estate, whether it's business or whatever, they, they're not, I guess they look at a situation like that and they're like, oh, I would never do that. I would never, I would never go and live in a property like that. You know, I would never do that to my family. I would never do it to my, you know, my kids. Like, I don't want them to live. And like, when I look at my own life, like almost everything good I've ever got was from a situation that most people would be like, I would never do that. Cause like, I just feel like that's what separates people who actually succeed from those who don't. Yeah, that, that's absolutely the truth. And the, and the other thing is, I mean, I was talking about it with my kids the other day. You know, when my kids were young, we didn't have any money because I, I mean, I was in the Navy. You don't make a lot of money in the Navy. And every every penny that I did make, I would I was paying a mortgage with it or a couple mortgages or three mortgages with it. So the whole time, you know, my kids, I was, you know, I was the guy that was out buying used Christmas presents. You know what I mean? Like my, And my kids never knew it. You know, my kids were thankful that I got them, whatever a pair of pants. They didn't know that they came from a, from a thrift store. And, and that's just the way it is. So I, I don't, I, I think if you enjoy it, if you can have the attitude that you see what's going to come to fruition long-term, it allows you to find some joy in what you're doing. And you know what? I mean, maybe this is just an individual thing, but I like suffering through those things. I think it, I think it builds character and I have a good time doing it. You know, uh, there was a time period also where my wife and I, you know, we bought this our second house in California and it was a really small house and my wife got pregnant. So now we went from having two girls to having two girls and a boy. And there was, it was a two bedroom, 934 square, square foot house. And my wife and I lived in the living room. So when you walk through the front door of my house on the right hand side was a couch and the left hand side, I mean, on the left hand side, literally when you walk through the door, was our bed, was where we slept. <laughs> and that, that's the way it was. We slept in the living room and we did that until I saved up enough money to put a little uh, addition on the back so we could have our own bedroom. But again, you know what? It was fun. That's what we did. That's that's what we were doing. And I, I had a vision of where it would lead to in the future. So it all it's all good. There's something to be said for if you can, what you said, embrace the mindset of make it fun while it sucks. So when I was working as a police officer, I was living in rooms of other police officers and paying $500 a month for rent and saving 100% of my paycheck to go buy rentals. And I had about 11 rentals before I ever bought my own house. And I, it was actually fun 
it, I mean, like the way camping is fun. You know, if you have that attitude of this is going to make me a lot of money later, this is this delayed gratification is going to pay off later. You can find joy in what you're doing, like the way we laugh about the chicken bone story. I've never heard that. That's very funny. I bet it didn't feel like a ton of fun when you were walking the house with a wife and thinking, I got to get her on board. She's not going to see <laughs> the vision. But those are the turning point moments. Like if we asked you what those houses are worth now, I'm sure everybody listening would say, oh, hell yeah, I would do that. That's totally worth it. But it doesn't feel like that in the moment. Yeah, no, I, I got to tell you, I was laughing, to be quite honest with you. I was looking at those chicken bones and just <laughs> thinking, OK, well, this is what we're doing. You you know, we want to live by the beach in California. We want to live by the beach in San Diego. You got to earn it. You got you to deal with some chicken bones. That's the way it is. <laughs> I feel like that's going to be an anecdote in a future book of yours, the chicken bone stories. That's awesome. All right. Well, let me let me ask you, like, overarching, like, you know, you're not like known for being like the real estate guy. You're like the extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership and the, you know, I mean, all of this uh, uh, military stuff. But you've done some real estate. So just for our audience, since a lot of them are, are entrepreneur in the real estate space, what what is your real estate philosophy? What have you done? You know, kind of what's that look like for you? You know, my my, my real estate philosophy is I, I would buy places that were like I just said, kind of the, the, the best thing I could afford in the neighborhood, which was usually the worst thing in the neighborhood and, and f- fix them up, live in them for a while. And as soon as I could save up enough money to buy something else, I would. And, and then I ended up branching out with a, a bunch of friends and we own a bunch of properties, you know, both commercial and, and residential in various parts of the country. So it, it's been great. What, what I really like about it for, for you, and this is advice that I give to young military guys and, and, and girls, but pe- folks that are in the military, because you're, you're not going to get rich being in the military. And yet it's a great job. It's a noble profession. It's a, a secure job. Like that's another thing. I was the, the real estate market crash and the economic travesty that unfolded in 2007, 2008. I was in the military. I barely even knew it happened. You know, my paycheck was coming yeah. in. I was paying my mortgage. Yeah. I was watching, you know, the, it, it was no factor to me. And, you know, I had a lot of friends well, I had some the people that I know, I should say, in the civilian sector, they were getting crushed by that. And for me, it was just another day. So, you know, from a real estate perspective, what I tell folks that are in the military is, you know, instead of paying rent, buy a house, rent out the rooms, you know, yeah. don't even sleep. in. You know, you buy a little three bedroom house, rent out all three of those bedrooms and sleep in the living room yourself. That's yep. that's what you do it. And pretty soon you'll be able to save up enough money to put a down payment on another place and put a down payment on another place and move in there and do the same thing. And just keep doing that. You got to forgo your comfort a little bit. And David, I'm not sure when you were paying 500 bucks a month for rent living in these various houses, were you married? Did you have kids? No, I was single. Yeah. And that's the perfect time to do it. You know, yep. you do it when you're young, you do it when you're single, you do it when you don't have kids, you do it when the only person that's really going to suffer is you. And, mm-hmm. and it's not really suffering. Like you said, if you're having a good time with it, it's all good. So I, you know, like anybody else, I believe real estate's a, a very good long-term investment. I saw enough people get caught upside down and crushed by the economic downturn. So, yeah. you know, I'm not one of these people that that tells everyone to go out and leverage as much as they can to, to buy as many properties as they can. Like I, I say, you know, think about what you're doing and don't over leverage, but you know, you can't plan a house, you can't buy a house and think, Oh cool. I'm just going to flip this. And it's guaranteed yeah. to go up a hundred thousand dollars in value in two years. That's not a guarantee. And you might end up owning that place for a long time. So set yourself up, think about it, don't, you know, take risk, but don't risk what you're, you know, it's like gambling. Don't risk what you can't afford to lose. And if you can buy a house and you don't mind getting stuck in that house for three years or five years while the economy turns back around and digs itself out of a hole, 
hey, nothing, it's, it's no factor. If you buy a place that you hate living in or you're not gonna live in or you have no ability to rent it and you're gonna either lose it or you're gonna be forced to live in a place that you hate, you may wanna think about that. Yeah, that's good advice. You know, we, I, somebody the other day asked if I'm worried about a coming recession. You know, the recessions tend to happen every decade or so and we're definitely due for one, whether or not it hits this year or 10 years from now. They asked if I was worried about it. And I said, I don't worry about it. I plan it. Like every decision I make today is based on, am I willing to hold this property? Should the market turn? Am I willing to hold this for three, five, 10 years? Will I have an exit strategy by doing that? And if so, then yeah, I'll move forward with it. But if not, then I'm not going to, because I don't want to be the guy in 2008 caught with their pants down, which was a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people. It was really, it was horrible to watch. And it's a good warning for everyone right now and forever. Be careful what you do. Don't over leverage yourself. And and what you just said is the exact same philosophy I have. Like if I, if I think I can hang on to this thing, worse comes to worse. And I can put a couple renters in there and cover a little bit of subsidize that a little bit if I have to. Okay, cool. I'll do it. But yep. if I'm, you know, doing massive leverage on something that I wouldn't be able to rent on something that mm-hmm. would, I would never want to live in. Okay. Well, that's might not be the best call. Well, that's yeah. where the risk comes in, but you mitigate your risk when you're willing to be uncomfortable. That's all that this really is, is okay. I'll rent out the bedrooms and I'll sleep in the family room. Now I'm coming out of pocket 200 bucks. That shouldn't, I can work at Applebee's and make 200 bucks, right? That's not a big deal. And that mindset, I guess, this is why I wanted Jocko on the podcast so bad. And our, our guests have heard me talk about this for a while is you do a better job of teaching this than anyone I've ever heard that having a mindset that embraces it's hard. That's good. Um, sleeping in the family room or on the couch or whatever you got to do to get through that tough time, not only allows you to take the risk that you need to take to get the house to accomplish your goals, but it makes the next thing that you undertake that much easier because you've conditioned yourself to not needing comfort and not needing to be a prima donna. And uh, when I read your book, Extreme Ownership, it I don't know how to describe what that was like. It was the best feeling ever. Brandon describes it as the feeling of like, okay, that guy just put into words what I've been feeling my whole life and more people need. And uh, that's why I love what you're talking about, because it's really just looking at the if you look at it and say, OK, I'm sleeping in the family room. I'm in America. I have running water. I have a toilet. I have a roof over my head. Like my bed is a little less comfortable, but I'm sleeping in a bed for most of the time. The world has been spending people slept on the ground in a cave if they were lucky, you know, was the dirt soft. It doesn't seem so bad at that point. When I was working as a cop, I was working 100 hour weeks and people said, how do you do it? And I just said, I sit in an air conditioned vehicle, temperature controlled. The car does most of the work. Right. I, I go, I go in a couple calls an hour, but a couple days, you know, out of a 20 hour day, a few hours of that was hard work. The rest of it's not really that bad. And if I keep thinking that way, then I can keep doing it. And you understand that mindset. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit for the, for what you've seen with people that you've been trying to coach or help the mindset that when they can embrace it, it typically leads to a happier and a more successful life? Well, any situation that you get in, no matter how negative it is, there are positive things that are going to come from it. And you got to, if you allow yourself to focus on the negative aspects or something, well, then, then that's where you're going to go. That's where you're going to go mentally. And that's where you're going to go emotionally. And that's where you're going to go physically. But if you look at these small positives, whether it's, Hey, look, I'm in an air conditioned car, or whether it's, Hey, look, I own a piece of real estate by the beach in California. Mm. Whether you, if you look at those positive things that will keep you mentally moving and emotionally moving in the right direction. So those things are, are really important. And, you know, I'm just thinking it goes further. Like my, after I had my son of several years later, my wife got pregnant again. So now, even though we had built a new room on there for my wife and I, well, guess what? Now I had four kids and one of them was going to be a baby. 
And I, I, so what I did was I took and went and cut my son's bedroom in half. And I, so I, I had both, I had my newborn baby and my son who was like six or seven at the time. I had them living in fundamentally a prison cell sized room, but yeah. that's what I had to do. And you know, like, that's what you know, you get, you get your, you get your work boots on, you, you strap on your hammer and you go out there and, and make it happen. And, and that's, for me, it was like awesome. It was like, hey, my kids have their own room. It's it's yep. 10 by 8, but they have their own room. And my wife yep. was like, cool. It sounds good to me. So, yeah, as opposed to, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. They're in these tiny rooms. This is not, we're not providing for them correctly. We're, yeah. we're bad. No, it's actually, we're doing, we're, we're awesome. We're taking care of them. We're doing the best we can. And they're going to be stoked one day. And they're going to look back and say, yeah, that's that's the way we grew up. And it was a good time. Yeah. You know, there's a thing we talk about a lot in personal finance called the creep or the income creep. And it basically says like over time, we tend to like, here's an example. When I was in college, my wife and I like, or, you know, like when we first got married and we were like young and super poor, we stayed in our car. Everywhere we traveled, we just slept in the backseat of the car. Two, I mean, I'm six foot five and a half, like awkward tall. And she's like, Five ten, or we're telling people cramming the back of a little Prius. That's what we did because we had to do it. Then later on, I got a little more money. Started staying at Super Eight motels. Like Super Eight was like high level, right? Then it moved up to a little bit nicer hotel. And then today, you know, like I go somewhere and I'm like, my instant thought is like, I wonder what the Marriott has, or you know, maybe in the Four Seasons. Like I'm, I'm pushing up there, right? And so the danger that everybody goes through is this like idea of like, once you get to that level, it's really hard to go back down that, that, that creep. And so that's why people who earn a half a million dollars a year are living paycheck to paycheck while people earning, you know, 50,000 a year are living the paycheck to paycheck. They're all living there because everyone just increases their thing. But what the reason I brought that up is because it's that concept of like, Oh, like I couldn't put my kids in an eight by 10 bedroom. It's because the creep has made it so like the standard is my kid should have a pony and my kid should have, my wife should have a, a Lexus. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't put my wife in a Toyota because like, that would just be, that would be irrational and, and awful. And so I, that's just something like I, I'm constantly having to remind myself as I build wealth and as I get more and more successful in life is like, let's not get too comfortable at this level. You know, like there's a, there's this, like, I have to be content in all situations and not just in the good ones. Yeah. And you know, that goes to, that goes back to what risk you're willing to take. And, and I'll tell you, I've, you know, when we were early on kind of making some moves, investing money into my own businesses and stuff like that, you know, I, I, I said to my wife, Hey, look, worst case scenario, we'll be in an RV traveling the coast of California surfing. Yeah. And I would yep. be totally stoked to do that. I'd be fine. You know, best case, maybe things will be, maybe instead of an RV on the beach, we'll have a house on the beach. It's all good. But, you know, when when David was saying earlier, like, hey, you got to take some risk for sure. You, but I don't try and dictate to people what level of risk they should take, because I know there's people out there that driving a Lexus is more important to them than it is to me. And yeah. so or or having your kid in an eight by 10 room is a, a sin to them or something that's totally awful. For me, it's no factor. And so, yeah, you, you got to look at where, what the worst case scenario is for you. And then you got to figure out if you're willing to take that risk. And, and look, <laughs> the bottom line is if you want to get rewarded, you're going to have to take risk. And the bigger, the more risk you take, the bigger reward you're going to have. But you got to remember that things are not always going to go your way. And no matter what anyone says, when the when the market crashed, 
there was a handful of people in the world that predicted that and actually acted on it. There was a bunch of people saying, oh, it'll crash, it'll crash, but they didn't act mm -hmm. on it. So you have to be prepared, whatever you wager, you have to be prepared to end up in a worst case scenario where you're living in an apartment with your kids and it's a one bedroom and you and your wife are sleeping in the living room and the kids are sleeping in the bedroom. You, if you're okay with that, take some risk. If you're not, then adjust your output so that it matches what you're willing to deal with. You're so right. And the people that took the risk in 2009, 2010, 11, when everybody was saying, like, that's when I started buying houses, when everyone was saying, don't do it at all. But I was able to, because I was renting a bedroom for 500 bucks a month. So if it all fell apart, who cares? I, I would have been all right. And what I learned was that the more that you're willing to endure or adjust, like what you said, the more risk you can take, which equals bigger rewards without necessarily bigger consequences. Cause it's not like my family was going to go hungry because I had put myself in that situation. And I know you've been through very difficult things in your career, right? Like just for instance, like, like hell week for you when you went through buds training and then some of the deployments you did that really established a baseline for you that, you know, I don't care how miserable it is. I will figure out a way to make it that actually helps you in the business world because because you're, you can accept it's going to be really tough. I'm going to be living in an RV or whatever. I will take bigger risks. And then a hard day's work to you doesn't feel like a hard day's work because you've done a harder day's work before. That was kind of the mindset I was talking about with how I can work a 20 hour day. Have you noticed that a lot of the successful people you're rubbing elbows with now had that same trait that they went through a more difficult thing earlier in their life. So now it doesn't seem as tough for them to do what they have to do to win. I think that if anyone is going to reach any level of success, they're going to a have to take some risks and b along the way, they're going to lose. They're going to get, they're going to get tripped up. Sometimes it happens to everybody. And there's that, that's when that attitude that you were talking about earlier that I talk about, which is people that got tripped up and said, Oh no, this is a disaster and I'm never going to make it out of this. Well, guess what? They don't people that say, Oh, I got tripped up. Cool. Now I have a better story to tell in 10 years when I do get to where I want to be. People that have that, that attitude, they tend to proceed out of things correctly. Whereas people that get bogged down in a bad situation, it, it hurts them. You know, it hurts them. You know, David mentioned Buds Week. Can you explain what that is, Jocko? Like what is what, what is Hell Week and or Buds and then Hell Week? And what, what is that whole thing for the for uh the Navy SEALs? BUDS is the basic SEAL training that you go through. And then part of the training is something called Hell Week, where you don't sleep and you do physical activity for like five or six days and a bunch of people quit. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that big of a deal. You know, it's... I got four kids. I mean, there's times where my wife with three kids and what, two kids and one was a newborn or one was on the way and she's got morning sickness and she's not sleeping at night. I mean, single moms that are out working two or three jobs trying to raise, you know, like, hey, you going through hell week, you get to work out a bunch. You get all the food <laughs> you can possibly eat and you're getting trained and you're getting paid to do it. It's, it's not that big of a deal. And, and same thing with Buds, like Buds is an extended Hey, you get to work out a bunch and you're going to be cold. Ooh, you're going to get tired. Oh no. You're going to get dinged up a little bit, but it's not that big of a deal. It's good. All it does is weed people out that don't actually want to be there. So, uh, you know, you, do you learn anything in buds from a tactical perspective? Not really. Do you learn that you can, that you're, that when you're going through something that's not fun, that it'll eventually stop? Sure. And you can, you can utilize that attitude. But, uh, you know, the, the real 
challenges in the SEAL teams don't come until you get to the SEAL teams. And really, for me, it, it wasn't until, you know, September 11th and the war started. And that's when you actually start to get start to figure out who you are. Well, the purpose of Buzz, I would imagine, is like you said, to get people to quit, to weed people out. It's not necessarily turn you into a super commando type guy, but it's to establish a baseline of, yeah, life can suck really bad. It can be really hard. You don't have to quit. That way you're a good investment when they want to start pouring into you. And I, I've just seen that pattern in life. The people who start with an internship and they're not getting paid that much, but they're willing to show up every day and work 60 hours a week and they're they're humble. They earn the right. They've they've proven that they won't quit. So now that it makes sense for their boss to give them the best training, to give them the best tools, which is what a Navy SEAL is be. They're getting the very best training, the very best attention. They're being molded as a person. They're not just your standard, let's plug this person in because we need a, someone to man a post in this position. It's the same thing as a cop. When you earn the right to get extra training because you haven't quit and you've showed up and you've shown you're dedicated, you get all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, it's, that's when the job really becomes fun. And it's not just in law enforcement and military that that works. If you prove to the boss at your job, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, which probably won't be as hard as a Bud's training was going to be, they're going to want to pour into you. And I just wish more people understood that concept that you have a lot more control over your own outcome in life with your job than what you think than when you just wait for someone to say, hey, here's an opportunity to stick out your hand so I can give it to you. Yeah, well, you mentioned a little key to <laughs> business and a key to life, which is hard work. If someone's willing to work hard, then you have a really strong chance of getting noticed and you have a really strong chance of, like you said, someone trusting you, investing in you, paying attention to you and helping you. Whereas if you if you're waiting for someone to do something for you and you haven't done anything for them. You're going to be waiting for a really, really long time. You know, that, like, you know, you, we, when we, you were talking about boot camp and me, my attitude, when I got to the SEAL teams, my goal is all I want to do is be a good SEAL. That's what I was doing. Okay, what do I need to do to be a good SEAL? I need to work hard. I need to study. I need to prep my gear. I need to not be late. These are fundamental things. And and if you take that attitude into any environment, any work environment, don't be late. Show up uh, with the right gear. Be prepared. Study what you're supposed to study. Know what you're supposed to know. That's so much of the battle right there as opposed to thinking, well, I'm going to sit back and and hope that someone's going to give me the path. There you go. Like, no, get out there and, and do it, do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Cause you give away the, the power of your own life to other people and you put it in their hands that you hope somebody recognizes something in you. And it really is as simple as you said, for almost every job that's out there, if you think the night before, what am I doing tomorrow and how can I prepare for it? You're already ahead of 95% of the other people. When they do start training you, you're going to pick it up a lot quicker because you're prepared. It's like showing up and you're already in shape, right? The first couple months of a new job, maybe it takes you a while to get in shape, except for the guy that prepped. And that's one of the things I love about your book, Extreme Ownership, is that it, it's proving we have the capability of growing in any circumstance, of overcoming in anything, if we can pay the price to be humble enough to say, that was my fault. And what I loved was your very first story, I'm sure you get this a lot, of a situation that most people would have said was not their fault. This was your, your blue on blue situation. But you were able to look at that and say, yeah, I can see where I was at fault, which ultimately meant you were the one who got better. You got stronger. You became the better leader when you owned it. Can you share with our audience a little bit about this principle of extreme ownership, how it applies to business and how it leads to personal growth? Well, you just summed it up really well. <laughs> <laughs> David does that. He, he does that. Usually like that. He gets done talking. We're like, all right, well, that was a good show. All right, thanks. No, but it's, it, we'll hear your thoughts. It's, it's, it's really straightforward, right? 
the mistakes are going to happen. Your life is going to happen. Your life is going to unfold. And the longer you sit around and blame other people, other things, other circumstances for for the situation that you're in, the longer you're going to be in that bad situation. The minute that you say, okay, this is what's going on. This is on me and I'm going to do what it takes to get it fixed. If you take that attitude, I'm telling you right now, that is that will turn your life around. But the moment you say, well, I'm in this situation because we don't get paid enough money as a cop. I don't get paid enough money as a Navy guy. I have my I got ripped off and bought a car on 24.9% interest. Now I got these car payments and that's now I can't afford to save for a house. Right. The minute you're blaming that car dealer for selling you that car instead of saying, okay, you know what? This is my fault. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this expensive car that I can't afford. I'm going to bring it down there and I'm going to trade it in and I'm going to get a, a, a Hyundai for 1200 bucks. Cause that's all I actually need. And I'm going to fix this problem. The minute that you actually take ownership of the problems of the situation that's putting you in the situation you're in, that's when you can actually go start solving those problems. And, and obviously it applies to an individual in your personal life, but it applies to your business and your teams as well as a leader. When something goes wrong and you're the leader of the team, I haven't had anyone come up with a situation where I'm the leader of the team, something went wrong and it's not my fault. If I'm leading a team and something goes wrong, it's 100% my fault. So what do I have to do to fix that problem? And if you have that attitude, I'm telling you, your world will begin to change. And it's not going to be easy to change. It's not even easy to take ownership for those things in the first place because we as human beings have these big giant egos. And the last thing we want to do is say, oh, this happened and it's my fault when it's much easier to point my finger at my wife for spending money that she shouldn't have spent or at my kids for spending money that they shouldn't have spent or at my boss for not giving me the bonus that I so much deserved. It's like, guess what? None of those are their fault. It's your fault. I didn't explain the situation with my wife mm-hmm. so she understood our finances. I didn't explain it to my kids well enough. I didn't I didn't develop a good enough relationship with my boss. I didn't work hard enough. I didn't deliver the results that my boss needed. Those are those things are all my fault and here's what I'm going to do to fix them. Yes. There's been a handful of books in my life that have been like they like changed the way I think. I mean, Rich Dad Poor Dad did it for me the first time and like this book called Life and Air. But Extreme Ownership did that for me very much so because it changed. I mean, anytime I look at any situation now, I naturally like that book comes to mind. I probably think about your book almost more than any other one because that, that concept comes to mind all the time. But then when I explain it to other people, I get a lot and maybe I don't know if you get this as well, but I get a lot of like kickback against it, like pushback of like, yeah, but that's it's not I mean, like you shouldn't lower your self-esteem by saying everything's your fault. And it's really not your fault. I mean, sometimes just you have bad people around you and it's really like, I, I get surprisingly amount of people who disagree with me on extreme ownership. And to me, it just seems like no, like common sense, but why, why is that? I mean, why do people just fight against that? Well, people fight against it because their ego hates it. (laughs) I hear every single one of those excuses times 10. I mean, I work with companies, I work with businesses, I work with leaders all the time, every day, all day. And I hear Every excuse you can possibly imagine. I mean, hear the one that you just said, you know, it's not really your fault because you got a bad team. Yep. Well, guess what? Who's in charge of the team? You are. So that means you train the team. That means you, you mentor the team. That means you get rid of the people on the team that don't know how to do their jobs. Okay. That's all on you. You can't, you know, if you've got bad people in your life on a personal level, guess whose fault that is? That's your fault. You brought those people into your life and you allow them to continue to sit there. You get yourself upside down financially. Well, guess what? 
You can blame, you can blame whoever you want to blame. It's on you. What are you going to do to fix it? That's what you got to ask yourself. So yeah, I get every excuse that you can imagine. And I have yet to have one where I said, yeah, good point. That's not your fault. Yeah, no, I'll give you a really hard <laughs> example. Um, you know, when someone says, hey, what about someone that gets cancer? What about someone that gets a, a really bad disease? Hey, how do I take ownership of that? The answer is straightforward. Look, that's horrible, but here's what you have to do. You have to take ownership of how you're going to respond to that, mm-hmm. right? You have to take, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you've got a terminal illness? Okay, take ownership of that. How are you going to live the next four months of your life? What are you going to do with the rest? That's what you need to take ownership of. So look, that's a that's an extreme example. Obviously, um, I have not I had cancer. I've I've lost some friends to cancer. And the ones that I've seen that had that attitude of like, okay, number one, I'm going to fight. And number two, I'm going to get my life in order to the best of my ability. And I'm going to enjoy what I have left. Those are the people that had the, the best uh, attitude the whole time. So even with something as harsh as that, it's like, what can you do? How can you look at this in the best positive light? You know, and that's another one, you know, with the attitude of saying, hey, when something goes wrong, good. And someone will throw that at me. You know, and I've had not, I've had people not even throw at it me at it, throw that at me, not in a, a I got you kind of way, but in a legitimate, hey, I just got diagnosed with cancer. How do I say good to that? And the answer for me is like, okay, let's look at this. You're here right now. You A, you have an opportunity to fight against this, and B, even if this is a 100% terminal disease, guess what? You're here right now. You can enjoy your family. You can, you can mend things that you've, you know, relationship that you've hurt. You have time right now that if you would have gotten hit by a car, you wouldn't have. So you've got your, you've got your mental capacity in order. There, there are positives to it. And, and, and my point is, look, it's a horrible situation, but what are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on, on all the negatives and, and go down into that abyss? Or are you going to say, okay, this is the, the, these are the cards that I've been dealt. What positive can I take out of this and how can I move forward? And that's, that's really the best possible thing you can do. What I love about the concept of extreme ownership, or one of the things I love, is it's very simple to when you describe when I got in the military and I realized how simple it was to win. It wasn't easy, but it was very simple. It was just, hey, here's, here's the, every answer that's going to be, or a question that's going to be on the test, and here's what the answer is. Just remember it. Show up on time. Have your gear looking this way. This is the way you do whatever. Extreme ownership works the same way. Anything goes wrong, you look at how it could have been your fault. So when I first heard it, I was a cop, and I, I was very... I was one of those cops that was very irritated when I had a partner that wasn't very good. And I would complain about it either to myself or to other people. And I heard that and it just like baptized my brain with, okay, that suspect just got up and ran away when I, when I, when I had already stopped him. And I had him sitting down in the corner where he couldn't get away with his legs crossed. My partner came in, was very casual. The dude saw it, pff, scoots off. Now I got to go run him. I got to spend the rest of my life or the rest of my shift sweating and, you know, itchy and miserable. <laughs> and uh, I just realized I've never told him him, hey, my expectations when I detain a guy is that you control him in this way. And then lo and behold, when I said that, he could tell I don't want to let David down. He started to do it. And then the next time we got into a struggle, he did not know what to do. He kind of watched me wrestling with the guy and didn't know where to jump in. And he said, well, I didn't want to mess it up. Okay. Instead of just thinking you're a POS, you just watched me fight and did nothing. I thought (laughs) we never talked about this, right? Here's what I want you to do. When I'm struggling with him, you jump on his legs. Because if you can just keep him from kicking around and moving, it'll anchor him in place. I can get to his arms really easy. 
Then I started thinking, oh my God, what else can I do this with? Hey, what it, let me see how you handcuff someone. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Let's practice our handcuffing technique. So when I get the arm, you can put the handcuff on in two seconds. And, and it just never ended. And I ended up, everybody wanted to be my partner because they made him look really good. And then I never got the bad one because then the best people wanted to work with me. And you go into the business world and what you find is that when you take ownership, it's like you're the only guy in the gym who's actually lifting the weight. Everybody else is saying, yeah, the weight's just too heavy. I can't do that, right? Why'd they make it so heavy? That's not my fault. I can't lift that weight. And they're literally cutting themselves off from the only thing that builds muscle, (laughs) which is resistance and tension and things being tough. So when I got in the business world, it just seemed easy, right? My assistant is known right now, Krista, as just a rock star because she's so good at what she does. But that's because we just set a standard that was ridiculously high and I held her to it all the time and everything that went wrong. I said, okay, that was my fault. I did not make sure you understood how important it was that you call instead of email in this situation. And now what do you know? Business is really good. It's not that hard. She's taking care of almost everything. And your book put into words that attitude that I felt guilty about having. And then, you know, I read it. I'm like, oh no, that's actually something that you can embrace. And I, I'm just like indebted to you because it changed my life so much. And now it, life is a lot easier because nobody else is doing that. Nobody else in the gym is lifting the weight. Your competition is really not even trying when you compare it to what they could be doing. Yeah. Those, all those examples are the types of examples that I hear all the time. I mean, you could either sit there and silently blame your partner or even verbally blame your partner. Even if you say, you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't have let that guy run. What does that do? I'll tell you what it does. It develops an antagonistic relationship between you and your partner. And now he doesn't want to work with you. Now you're annoyed the whole time. He's annoyed the whole time. Whereas if you actually take ownership of the problem and you say, hey, you know what? We never talked about this. I should have, I should have told you what I normally do. And I kind of let you down. I'm sorry about that. Do you want to do a couple walkthroughs so we know how to do it? You did the same thing with your assistant. Think of what your assistant thinks of you when she sends an email instead of calling and you lose a deal. So you walk in and you go, you just cost me a hundred grand on this deal. That's pathetic. I can't believe I should, I should, I should be thinking about finding you. You're on the ball. What does that do? It makes her paranoid. It makes her not want to actually be proactive because she's scared to make a mistake. And she feels like she's blamed. And by the way, she's putting her resume out to find if she can work for somebody that's actually (laughs) not a complete jerk. Whereas when you go in and you take ownership of it, you say, look, this is my, and you're not, and by the way, you're not just saying this is my fault so that you can smooth things over. You truly believe this is my fault. I'm the boss. I didn't teach you how to do this. That is 100% my fault. And this is, this is what we need to do from now on. Here's the criteria that means email. Here's the criteria that means voice. Here's the criteria that means text me immediately because I need to go make a visit. Do you understand these things? Here's a couple scenarios. And all of a sudden she's thinking, wow, I, she's feeling guilty that she did mess that up and she wants to do better. You, she, she knows that you're investing in her. She's going to stick with you forever because she trusts you because you trust her because you're trying to grow her. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you mm-hmm. look up in however many years you've been doing this for. And all of a sudden you're saying your life is easy. It's like life does get easy. Life does get <laughs> you easy, got a good team. but you got to get through taking responsibility for the things that are going on in your world. You know, I had a guy on my podcast Captain Charlie Plum, who was in the Hanoi Hilton for six years in Vietnam after getting shot down. And one of the things that he said, you know, they would get shifted around from roommate to roommate, like every three months or every six months. And if they had a roommate that did something, I mean, they're stuck in a, in a prison cell. If they had a roommate that did something that annoyed them. So whether it was a guy that picked his nose or, 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 you know, scratched his, his ass all the time or whatever, 
when you had that situation, the code was if your roommate, if your cellmate did something that annoyed you, it was your fault for allowing yourself to be annoyed. Mm. <laughs> and when I heard that, I'm like, it doesn't get me. It doesn't get <laughs> me more extreme yeah. ownership than that. To be stuck <laughs> in a prison cell with something and everything that they do that annoys you is your fault for allowing it to annoy you. And so what these guys come out of there with the most incredible bond and not to mention they get through living with in close quarters with someone with no food for six months, eight months or a year. So, yes, this idea of taking ownership is very powerful. It's hard to actually do if you let your ego get in the way. If you don't, if you don't let your ego get in the way and you take ownership of stuff, it will absolutely improve your life. You know, one of the biggest areas for real estate investors, myself included, uh, who, where I tend to not want to take ownership is when dealing with contractors, right? As a real estate investor. Yeah. We deal with contractors all the time. I mean, how many times in my life, even on this show, and people are probably laughing right now because they hear me every other episode complaining about a contractor where he ripped me off or he's, he's a month overdue. But when I really like in my like, soul look at the situation, 100% 100% of the time, not 99, not 98, 100% of the time, I could have solved that in a different way. It's always my fault when I really think about it. My ego hates that though. I hate that, that having to admit like, no, I was the moron there. I didn't spell it out. I didn't get it in writing. I paid the guy in cash. I paid up front. It's always stuff that I could learn from. But yeah, I keep making the same mistakes over and over and over. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's, that's one of rough. the ones, one of the examples I talk about is like, well, and it works with contracting too, right? What if the weather's bad? I mean, oh, you have a good one in your book about that. You should have set the base closer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do. If, if, if you're planning to do a, a, a raid with helicopters and you know that there's a possibility that bad weather moves in, well, if bad weather moves in and you don't go on the raid because there was bad weather and the helicopters couldn't fly and you go, Hey, sorry, you know, I can't control the weather. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? Okay. Most people say, yeah, you're right. You can't control the weather. It's not your fault. If you're a good leader and you actually take ownership, you say, you know what? We didn't execute the raid because we didn't have helicopters because the weather was bad and because I didn't have a contingency plan to use vehicles to get to a closer point where we could actually conduct the raid with vehicles instead of with helicopters. That's my fault. You know, and it's the same thing with contracting. I mean, like I've got building going on right now. And guess what? We had we just had two weeks of rain here in Southern California. And. I could sure enough say, well, why are we behind schedule? Well, guess what? I need to build into the schedule some contingency plans that deal with weather and what parts of other projects can go on because we can't pour cement right now. Okay, well, what can we do? What can we do? Maybe not on this project, but on another one. So that's my fault. And if I don't plan for these contingencies and all I do is get mad at my contractor because he's not where I want him to be on the schedule, well, why didn't I talk to him early enough and say, hey, here's the timeline that I need to beat. Here's why. Here's where I need this done by. And by the way, what contingency plans can we talk through if we do? Mm-hmm. Where can we make up time? Do we know where we can make up time? So, yes, as you guys can see, taking ownership, although it's a rough thing to do on your ego over time, it is one of the most beneficial things you can do in your life. Yeah. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. 
That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor to get six months of rent ready for $1. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means? Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. Hey, how do you balance, how do you balance ownership with holding a team accountable? So let's say your contractor does screw up and it's your fault. Like it's your fault. 
But if it's your fault, like, do you still, do you still punish the contractor? I mean, do you, how do you, how do you balance the two of accountability with your team and with those around you with you taking ownership of it? Like, do you have any so, thoughts on that? It, yeah. I mean, when you're taking ownership, like I just said, you're not taking ownership for lip service. It's not like, Hey, I did this. It's my fault. Guys, you guys were late because of me. It's like, mm-hmm. w- w- where am I at? What kind of plan did I come up with where I thought, realistically that this contractor was going to be able to execute this entire, you know, 13 month build with no weather. Is that even a realistic thing to think about? (laughs) Of course it's not a realistic thing. What I should have done as a leader is set expectations properly where I say, okay, here's what I built into this. Now, what you might be talking about is something a little bit different, which is I have a contractor that's not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not making timelines consistently, not because of the weather, but because their, their lack of planning. And so maybe I get in there and micromanage them a little bit, right? And maybe that works. Maybe that gets them tightened back up. Maybe I have to swing by the job site and check and see where the progress is to make sure that they're holding the line where they're supposed to be on the schedule. And and maybe that tightens them up. And if it does, that's great, right? And I just know that I got to keep kind of following up with them. I got to micromanage them more than I would like to. But maybe it doesn't work. And maybe they just get mad. And that's when I have to say, okay, what am I going to do? How do I calculate this financially? Am I going to cut these guys away? Bring in a new contractor. How much time is that going to cost me? But to sit there and just, you know, throw up my hands and say, well, I got a bad contractor. Well, guess what? Maybe it's time to bring someone else in. And that is my decision as the leader and as the one that's taking ownership of the scenario to make. And I can either, you know, again, it's a, it's kind of turns into a math problem of, well, how much money am I going to lose by not having yeah. this apartment ready in time to get it rented out for these following months versus how much money am I going to lose when I bring in a new contractor that I know and trust? And by the way, what kind of relationship have I built with my contractor where he feels he's okay with letting me down? Because if I build a good relationship with someone, the last thing they want to do is let me down, right? The la- that's the last thing they want to do. They want to they be part of the team. They want to They want to perform well, especially when they know, oh, I haven't explained to them that this is one property that they're working on right now. And I got seven more that are going to need help with. And do you want to be in the game with me? Because if you want to be in the game with me, guess what? I work with people that work. I work with people that get after it. If you want to get after it, I got more work than you than you can finish. So let's go. If you don't want to work hard, cool. I, I, I will find someone that does. So there's a million things that we can do to take ownership when something isn't going our way, even when it appears to be something that is out of our control. Look, it's our world. It's our property. It's our business. We got to take, does that mean you're going to win every time? Absolutely not. Man, I had a, I had one of the worst additions done on one of my properties. It was horrible. And I was gone. I was on deployment and they finished the job while I was on deployment. So like everything was just, there was, there was, you know, 14 foot walls that had one plug on them, you know? And, and, and that seems like, like, I mean, just the reason I bring that example up is because you think about, you think about what that means, right? That means that this would have cost the contractor four, $6 to put yep. another plug on the wall and provide convenience for the lifetime of this property. Right. And yet they still, snuck in and only put one plug on this wall. I got a 14 foot wall with one plug at one end. So I can't put a light on the other end. And, and it's like, okay, that guy's, that guy's not a good person and didn't do a good job. And I wasn't there to, 
to oversee it. What does that mean? That means, guess what? First of all, I should have vetted the contractor harder. Second of all, I should have done a better job checking out the electrical designs to make sure that everything was getting covered. And third, I should have planned to have the job done while I was actually home before I went on deployment so that I could oversee this without burdening my poor wife with three kids. And what am I going to blame my wife? Hey, by the way, while you're raising our three <laughs> kids, while I'm gone away on deployment, I want you to do electrical inspections on our contractor every single day. Like that's not happening. So what do I do? Do we get frustrated? No. Like you said, what do I do? I learn from it. And then I move forward. That's what we can do in life. That's how we take ownership. Yeah. And that's really where you see the fruits of it come out is the next time you do the job, you've now thought, okay, we didn't even talk about the weather. Let me talk to the contractor. And now the contractor is benefiting from your extreme ownership because he thinks, huh, I never thought about that. Well, what could I do? And you have that conversation. Um, and, and what you, you get stronger every time. And I think, I love that you said you're not always going to win because you're not always going to win, especially if you're pushing to the limits of what you're capable of, you should be losing, right? Like when you work out, you should be going to failure, which means if you did your job in the gym that day, you failed, you could not get that thing up. And that's what you're supposed to be getting to. The goal is to get stronger. And as you get stronger, every time the wins start to pile up and they start to come more frequently. And that's what I feel sets apart the people that end up passing up their competition, regardless of where they started was because they learned every time, but you don't learn unless you're taking ownership. And that comes up with real estate constantly. Like you guys, that was such a good example of, well, my agent didn't tell me this and my contractor was supposed to do this, but he didn't do it. Or they're always mad at someone. And what, what that really means is you were just hoping that it would work out. You did not have any control over what you were doing at all. You were just smoking hopium and hoping that it would just all work out. And, and that's what I tell people is anytime you get that little feeling in your gut, I hope this goes good. Stop, stop right away. Do not go on that at all. Hope is not a course of action. If you are hoping for things on a deal, it's probably not the deal you want to go with. I mean, yeah, once again, you can do a risk matrix and figure out if the hope is, is a good enough risk, but you can't count on hope. It's not going to work out for you. Yeah, that's, that's really good. good. And when you are, you should stop what you're doing right then and there and start to put a plan in place. What can I do to get the information I don't have to feel better? You know, we would never raid a house as a cop and just hope that the people inside didn't have weapons and didn't have a criminal history. There's all these things that we would do to try to put the odds in our favor. And you can never control for everything, but you can have a plan in place for everything you've ever seen. And the same goes with real estate, which means the more things that you see, the more experience you have, even if it comes through a loss, the more you can prepare for the next time and the better you'll be. And like, like you've seen Jocko, just buying one house and holding it for a long period of time can have an insanely big impact on your financial health and your family's health. And if you start stacking up those good decisions over and over and over, what you find is that life just starts to get a lot easier. It doesn't feel as hard. You got a good team around you. You've made good decisions. Those are paying off for a long period of time. And that's why I love what you're teaching is I, I really wish that like high school kids and grade school kids were being taught this kind of stuff instead of just, Oh, it, something went wrong. Well, it's somebody else's fault. Cause that's kind of prevalent in, in today's society. If we're just being honest, a lot of, if you can be the biggest victim and the loudest victim and blame the most people, then you're the winner. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's horrible. And you know, you mentioned that you can't plan for everything and, and kind of, you might think that that leads to the fact that, well, if you can't plan for everything, then you can't take ownership of everything. But as we already kind of said, you can take ownership of how you react to things. So if you have a contractor that's not doing their job or you have a, a, a business deal that doesn't go well, what do you do? How do you handle it? What do you use? What do you utilize that for to learn from, to make another maneuver? I mean, look, like you said, 
you're not going to win every single time. It's not going to happen. You're going to you're going to make some bad decisions. You're going to make some bad calls. You're going to lose some money. And how do you react to it? You know, how do you how do you handle those pressure situations? What do you let it do to your attitude? What do you let it do to the rest of your business? That's what you got to watch out for, because the way you react to things is how you take ownership of things you can't plan for. Yeah, so good. Hey, I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about something that. Well, I'll just, I'll just give an example. Every single day on your Instagram, just about every day, I follow you on Instagram. You got that picture of your watch at 4.30 a.m., roughly 4.30 a.m. You wake up every morning at 4.30 a.m. And I don't want to talk about getting up early necessarily, even though I think that's a great idea. But just that discipline of getting up at 4.30 every day at an ungodly hour like that. Uh, were you always a disciplined person, like even from a young age? Or is that something you develop over time? And can our listeners become more and more disciplined over time? Like, How do you view discipline? I think I had sort of a, I guess, a tendency to be disciplined, but not any more than any person, any normal person. And, and I think when you ask, can you develop discipline? Well, the answer is clearly yes. And the way that you develop discipline is by deciding that you're going to be disciplined. <laughs> I mean, that's what it boils down to. You want to wake up early in the morning? Look, it's not going to feel good. It's not going to feel good, especially when that alarm goes off and you went to bed at 1130 because you were up writing an email to one of your clients that's mad about something. It's like, okay, that's that's the way it is. When that alarm clock goes off, it's not going to feel good. It's not going to feel good at that moment. So what do you do? You either give in to the, the bad feeling and you give in to weakness or you say, you know what? The discipline doesn't care what time I went to bed. The discipline knows I need to get up and go. And you will realize that when you get done working out and now it's 5.30 or 5.45 or 6 o'clock, you already have a workout under your belt. You don't even, you don't even realize that you didn't sleep very much. It's fine. You'll, you're not going to die because you had a, had a night of, that you didn't get great sleep. So, so guess what? You get up, you power through, and, and the next night you get everything done and you go to bed a little bit earlier. Cool. You get a little extra sleep. Fine. But the discipline is something, it's a decision that you make. And I think sometimes people, you know, I experienced this with my own kids where my own kids, you know, I would tell them like, Hey, you got to power through that. And my own kids would be like, well, you know, you're, well, you're you, yeah. it's easier for you. And I'm like, no, it's not easier for me. I just decide to do it. And by the way, I will never, ever let anyone know that it's not easy for me. I'll get up <laughs> and feel exhausted and tired and miserable, and I'll put a smile on my face, go down there and be like, oh, I'm so, I'm so pumped to get after it right now. I won't tell you if I'm cold. I won't tell you if I'm tired. I won't tell you if I'm too hot. I won't tell you if I'm hungry. I won't tell you if I'm thirsty. I won't tell you anything. I won't do that. I will just go and do what I'm supposed to do. Yes. Does that make me uh, two-faced? Does that make me a liar? I don't care. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to whine. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Well, let me ask you a question. So this has been, uh, this question has been plaguing me for the last few weeks since I heard this story. Uh, a good buddy of mine is extremely disciplined when it comes to like, he's got to get a jog in every day. He goes, he's a runner. He runs every single day. He's got two little kids at home. He's got no money, he's struggling with everything, but no matter what he gets that 10,000 steps in and he goes for a jog. I mean, he's in the middle of a tornado, like there's a tornado in his neighborhood and he's jogging next to it because he's got to get that in. And I love that discipline in him. Then he says to me, I got my, he's got his real estate license to, to be a real estate agent. But uh, I don't know, two months ago. And he goes, Brandon, I haven't done anything. Every day I wake up and I know I need to do something and I just haven't done it. So my, my, his question to me was, why am I incredibly disciplined in this area of my life and nothing will stop me and I get after it every day. But in this other area, I just can't do it. 
Like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on something like that? Why are we disciplined in some areas and not others? My, my thoughts on that are, number one, he hasn't chosen to be disciplined in the real estate area. And number two, it's obviously not that important to him. He's comfortable in the situation. Even though he doesn't like, doesn't have any money, he's, he's allowed himself to be comfortable with it. He doesn't mind not being able to provide a good future for his kids. He doesn't mind not being able to have a solid roof. He doesn't mind not being able to have a financially secure scenario. He doesn't mind that. He's comfortable. And if, and, and yet yeah. he's uncomfortable being out of shape. He's got where his ego is focused is he wants to be in shape because he'll look at he'll look at some other real estate agent down the road that's fat and out of shape and see, you know what? You might have money and a plan, but I'm in shape and you're going to die before me. And that's good enough for him. So his, <laughs> ego, his ego is satisfied by that. And and so what he needs to do is take a long look at at what his priorities actually are, because that's great that you can run fast. But if you can run fast but the reason you're running is because you have no place to sleep. The reason you and you can run fast, but your kids don't have a financially secure uh, environment to live in. You know what? And even if you look at your kids and you say, "Hey, you know what? I don't want my my kids don't need a car. My kids don't need this." You know, think about this. What if your kids get sick? What if your kids get sick? What if your kids get some kind of horrible disease? And what they need is doctors outside of the insurance plan that you hopefully have, but what if they need specialty drugs and, and you yeah. just have to say, sorry, I can't, I can't, I can't afford that because I was too busy running and not focusing on actually building my career. And look, the other thing that's tough about real estate, as you guys know, real estate's not like, Oh, cool. I got my license. Hey, week two, I just got my first deal. Yeah. yeah. Like that's not happening. That's not happening. It's not happening. Yeah. You got you to gotta actually put in time and effort with no payoff, yep, zero yep. payoff. You know, I, you know I, I know a bunch of people that are real estate agents. Real estate agents don't make money for years sometimes. Hey, look, if you're a good real estate agent, you can make things happen and you know people. Sure, there's a possibility you can make something happen, but I wouldn't count on it. You know, if you're talking actual real estate agent. Now, if you have saved money and you're going to do, you know, what we're talking about, buying houses and living in them and renovating that's a little bit different because you can start making that happen but guess what you're going in the hole when you do that too yep you're going in the hole when you do that i drove a 1997 dodge grand caravan with a driver's side window that didn't work it was taped shut for 13 years wow whatever whatever i don't care i own real estate get some (laughs) yeah i love it (laughs) I one of the, so Brandon and I had a, a similar conversation in Hawaii where we were talking and and I was doing really really well in the financial area of my life and kind of like not well at any other other area and the more he was poking at me like pushing me like hey why don't you do more the more it started to come out of me I just don't care right and so I had the the opportunity to kind of fudge that or lie to him a little bit and make excuses. And Brandon is my friend. So he probably would have, I mean, Brandon is my real friend. So he would have told me that's BS, (laughs) but a lot of people would have said, Oh, I understand. Right. And I didn't want to do that. Instead, what I just said is, you know what? You're right. I have the body that I want to have because I choose what food I eat and I choose when I work out. So as much as I don't like it, I, I want it. And, and it was very hard to say that, but it felt right because it, it was true. I could have a different body if I wanted a different body. I could have more friends and better friends. I could have more everything if I wanted to. And when you say to yourself what you just said, Jocko, I care more about running than I care about my family's financial future, which is what your actions are saying. So your words might as well back it up. It usually won't sit right with you if you're a good person. 
it will start to bother you. It's like sand in your eyeball. And then you're going to want to start getting it out, which is where change like is born. That's the genesis of where I don't like what I'm doing. And that's where people have to start when they say, oh, I've wanted to buy a house for a long time, but I just haven't taken action yet. Start saying it's not worth it to me to make phone calls to make the hundred grand that I said I wanted to make. And if you do that long enough, there's just something inside you that wants to fight back. That's like, that's not good enough. And really that's where change will start. Yeah. Also people get sucked into doing what they're good at and what they're comfortable with. Mm, right. Yeah. This guy yeah. he just got his license. He's not comfortable calling people up. He's not comfortable, you know, trying to talk to listing agents to see if they can help out. He's not comfortable saying, you know what, I'm going to go to around a bunch of open houses and just talk to meet people and see what the market's like or whatever advice you give people when they're starting in the real estate business. He's not comfortable doing it. So what is he doing? He's comfortable running. He's going to go for a yep. run. That's yeah, exactly and, and, e- and that's an ego thing, right? We we cater to our egos when we feel the most uncomfortable. That's why they're not our friends. Absolutely an ego. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, and and you know, I always talk negatively about ego, but but it's not like I don't think you should have it. In fact, you you better have an ego. I mean, an ego is what is driving you to win. Uh, an ego pushes you to do better. That's if you didn't have an ego and you didn't care what anyone saw you as, or you didn't care how you appeared, or you didn't care what you looked like, well, then you would just be sitting around on a couch eating Cheetos and watching TV, which is not what I recommend. So I'm not saying you shouldn't have an ego, but if what the the bad thing that happens is people let ego stand in the way of them actually trying something new, or as we talked about already, taking ownership of things that are going on in your world that are not good. Yeah, that's so good. So good. You know, just a really one last point to that. It reminds me of the, the workout analogy, David, you used a second ago. But when people talk about becoming a real estate agent or even investing in real estate or starting a business or whatever, like in Jocko, you, you hinted at this as well. You don't make money in the beginning or when working out, you don't get ripped results. that first time. You're really the results. So it's like, and I actually told this guy when he said he's going to get his license, I said, that's great. But understand, like, you're going to have to leave your family like leave your wife at home with the two kids, which is really hard to do. And you're going to feel horrible. Then you have to go do something that makes you zero money at all. Nothing for months. And you have to do that for hours and hours and hours every day for month after month after month and have no progress whatsoever. You're going to feel like a complete failure. And then you're going to feel like an idiot for leaving your family every day. And if you can do that, then you'll probably be a successful real estate agent or a successful real estate investor or a business owner or whatever. But it takes like an incredible amount of time and discipline to just fail over and over and over and not see the results in a world that we're so results driven, like post that Instagram picture. How many likes does it have? Oh, not a lot. Okay. I'm not going to do that again, but it's just a very different world that I think we, we struggle with. And a lot of people struggle with that. You got any advice on how, how do you just get through months and months of hell until you see the, the results? You got You got to play the long game, right? You're fighting the long war. If you're focused on, <laughs> and there's actually two. So when you shoot a weapon and you'll know what I'm talking about, David, when you shoot a weapon, when you, what you're supposed to do is look at the front sight of your weapon, right? Because that's what's going to be in focus. And as you look at your front sight, even if you're looking, if you're looking 300 yards away on a rifle at your target, after a few seconds, that target will become blurry because you just can't focus for that long on a, on a target that's that far away. So what you do is you keep that in the background and you, if you focus on your front sight, that's what you have to do in life. So as you you have this long-term goal, and maybe that long-term goal is I'm going to save up 100 grand as a down payment on a house. Okay, so you have that goal. You, you see what your target is. Well, after a week, 
that target becomes real fuzzy because it's so far out <laughs> the future that you just lose sight of it. So what you have to do is you have to focus on your front sight, which is focus on this week. What can I do this week? What can I do today? What can I do this month that will move me closer to that long-term strategic goal? You look at that front, whether that's, look, I don't care what happens. I don't care how many deals I get, but I'm going to talk to whatever, seven people this week. I'm going to talk to seven agents this week, and I'm going to see if there's any way I can help them or, so, you know, whatever. Whatever goal you make, and you just say, look, that's what I'm going to do. Now, what happens eventually is that daily grind wears you out. And as that daily grind focusing on the front sight wears you out, then what you have to do is shift your focus back to that long sight again, long, back to that long-term target. And you say, oh yeah, you know why I'm doing this right now? Because I'm going to get a house one day and that's where I'm at. And that's why I'm doing the short-term stuff. Then you focus on the short-term. So you, you got to shift your, your focus back and forth. Sometimes the long-term goal is so far away that it, it, it's too much for you to understand. It's too much for you to start going forward, keep moving forward on. So in that time, just look at the short-term goals. When you get worn down by the short-term goals, cool look up for the long-term goal and say, yep, that's where I'm going. I can suck it up right now. I can keep living in this apartment for 500 bucks a month while I'm buying investment properties because I know where I'm going to end up. That can be enough to get you through. Whereas if you go, you know what, forget it. I'm done with this and I'm going to rent a $2,500 a month place with three bedrooms and a pool. So, and, and I'm, by the way, I'm buying a 72 inch flat screen TV today. You just, you just lost that long-term goal and it's not good. Yeah. Well, if you do it right, when you get a long-term goal, it'll pay for all your other things that you want, right? Like Brandon was talking about this and I've talked about it before too. Let your house buy your car. Let your good investment pay for the luxuries that you really want. Don't blow your capital on that short-term thing that's not going to give you any love back. Yes, that that is a good thing to do. That is a good thing to do to go in and buy the car that you want with cash and just be like, yeah, I'll take it. Here's the money. Bye. Would you, would you yep. like to talk to our finance department? Nope. No, thanks. <laughs> We're good. Yep. Hey, Jocko, you have a few books aimed at like kids and I know you have kids yourself and I, I want to touch on this before we get out of here today. And like those who be listening, a lot of our listeners have kids at home, young kids, especially like our audience is, you know, 30 to 40 year old people uh, uh, heavily. First of all, I'm wondering why did you write these books, the, the books for kids? And then what lessons are not taught in school today? that you're trying to communicate or that more people, like more kids should realize that uh, the parents listening can start implementing in their, in their kids. Yeah. So why did I write these kids books? Cause I have kids. And if you've ever gone out and try and buy books for your kids that actually give them a message oh, that are based on the values that you might want your kids as human beings to know, you won't be able to find them. So that's why I wrote these books way the warrior kids. What, what lessons they teach that they don't learn in school, every lesson that a kid should grow up with that they don't <laughs> learn in school, which they're not, is what's in these books and everything from, you know, eating healthy to working out to, and I don't know if you've read the books, but the second book is based on the fact that this kid wants a new bike. The kid wants a new bike and he, 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 that's what he wants. And his uncle says, Oh yeah, you know, you can get a new bike. You just, how much does it cost? Well, it's $149. Okay, cool. Do you have $149? No. So what are you going to do? You can't, you know, he, he, and he kind of sets it up like he thinks his uncle is just going to buy it for him. It's like, no, I'm not going to buy it for him. You have to earn that money. So he starts a business. He starts mowing lawns. And while he's doing that, he actually takes his old bike, which he had let fall apart and get rusty and takes it apart with the help of his uncle and rebuilds the bike and fixes it up and gets it into tip top shape and renames the bike. 
And by the time he gets this bike made with his own hands, he realizes he doesn't want to buy a new bike. That'd be a waste of money. So there's so many lessons in these books that every, and I'm going to say kid, but I'll tell you what, one of the, one of the coolest letters, I don't usually, you know, you get letters from people that say, Hey, thank you for this. And thank you for that. And I, I know we all get those kind of letters and it's, it's awesome to get. I got a letter from a guy that said, Hey, I, you know, I was, I'm 37 years old. I was out of shape. I was drinking every night. I was having a bad time at my job. I hadn't been promoted in three years. Just problem, 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 problem. And he said, then I read your book. And he said, when I read your book, I said, you know what? I'm going to start, I'm going to start waking up a little bit earlier and just doing a little exercise. So he started doing that. Then he said, you know what? Since I start, when I started exercising, I said, you know what? Maybe I don't, don't need to drink every night. So I stopped drinking every night. Then I started actually applying myself at my job. Then I started actually getting up early, working out, going early to my job, doing a good job, paying attention. And he said, so it's been nine months. I've lost 40 pounds of fat. I got promoted at work. I've repaired the relationship I have with my wife and kids and life is awesome. And then he said, by the way, the book that I read was The Way of the Warrior Kid, which was the first kid's <laughs> book that I read. So th- those books, Way of the Warrior Kid is the first one. Uh, Way of the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission is the second one. And Way of the Warrior Kid, Where There's a Will is the third book in that series. And then I also wrote a little kid's book, which is called Mikey and the Dragons, which is How to Overcome Fear. That's fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I'm not surprised at all by the fact that like this guy's life was changed by those books. Cause like it's, it's the simple lessons that change, like they change people's mentality and the way that we think it's like simple stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, just, so, I just had yeah. the, uh, at the event that we just did in Australia for echelon front called the mustard. I just had the CEO of a company, a big investment company. He bought, he brought like 28 people or something to our event. So he showed up and I, and you know, I was talking to him and you know, expecting him to talk to me about extreme ownership or expecting him to talk to me about the dichotomy of leadership or discipline equals freedom field manual or the podcast. And he, he said, yeah, he goes, no, I listen to all those things. They're all great. He goes, but what really made me commit to your message, he said, was when I read your kids books to my kids. And I said, this is stuff everyone needs to hear. And that's why I brought my company here. So yeah, the kids books have been, uh, have been awesome to, to write, and I'm super stoked. And one thing that's weird, I'll say this, is they're all written, all the, the three Warrior Kid books are written from the perspective of a 10-year-old kid named Mark. And I always, when I say that I love the books and that they're awesome, I always feel like I'm being arrogant. But when I read the books and when I reflect on them, I always feel like I'm complimenting this 10-year-old kid that wrote the book. <laughs> so I'm not trying to be arrogant, but that kid, Mark, that's the lead character in those books. He did a great job telling his story. <laughs> and it, that's yeah. that's brilliant. Cause you found a way to be <laughs> proud of yourself without fueling your own ego. You created someone <laughs> else's ego and you fueled that. <laughs> yeah. Proud of that kid. He wrote a great book. <laughs> well, speaking of books, you got a new book coming out right now. I think it actually came out a couple of days ago before this podcast launched. Uh, it's on leadership, right? I think it's called, uh, was it leadership? Leadership tactics. I believe, leadership right? Yeah, right? And tactics. tactics. Yep. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? And what, like, I, I read, I've read 99% of it now or 90% of our last day since I got it from your publisher and, uh, it's unbelievably good, but can you explain like, what is this book about and why is it different than the others? I have a leadership consulting company. I have a podcast where I answer questions all the time at my leadership consulting company. I'm answering questions all the time. And you know, even the, the, the question that you asked Brandon, like, Hey, what about when someone says this? Well, I get asked those questions all the time. And specifically on my podcast, I would get 
lists and lists of questions. And, and obviously when you get thousands of questions, a lot of those questions are the same questions. Yep. And I realize that people have a hard time actually taking these principles and pragmatically applying them to the specific scenarios that they are in. So that's what this book is. It's leadership strategies and tactics. And it's, it's something like 85 or 90 chapters that are all two, three, four pages long. Some of them are even less than that, that, Hey, what do you do when your boss is micromanaging you? How do you handle that? What do you do when your boss puts an ultimatum on you? How do you handle that? How do you lead someone that is not reaching their potential? How do you tell someone tactfully that they're creating a problem or that they're not meeting the standard? All these sort of pragmatic things to apply these things as a leader is what this book is. And, you know, the feedback that I'm getting from it, from the folks that, that like you, that got a, an early release copy has just been phenomenal. A, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is the book that we've been waiting for. So yeah. I'm super happy to get it out there. Hopefully it also means that I have to answer less questions of the same kinds over and over again. But uh, that's that's what I wrote it for. And, and that's the that's the that's the mission of this book is to allow people to take these and pragmatically implement these solutions into their life. Yeah. You know what I love about it is like, and I'm not just trying to blow smoke here, but like it sometimes, you know, like when you're working out, let's give an example of going to the gym, right? When you go to the gym, like you can be like, here's why working out is so helpful. And here's why you should work out. And here's a bunch of great machines. But sometimes I just want somebody that says like, do this machine this way, this many times. And so like, for example, it's like you have a chapter, how to succeed as a new leader. Number one, be, be humble. Number two, don't act like, it's just like, oh, Okay, that's great. So you can like just flip through this like field manual style, right? Like, and okay, this is what I'm struggling with now. This is the answer. I love it. Yeah. Uh, be humble. Like, like there's a chapter on what to do as a new leader. And one of the, one of the things is don't act like you know everything. And yeah. this is a big trap for new leaders because they're feeling like they, they got promoted. Maybe they don't feel like they should have. And so what they want to do is they want to kind of bow up and act like they know everyone. Well, everybody on the team knows that you don't know everything. So when you try and act like that, they actually lose respect for you, for, for you trying to act like you know everything. So really simple, pragmatic. The, the other one that's funny is, or I mean, just think of this from our conversation that we've had is, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, Jocko, when I take ownership of something, you know, my team is actually saying, yeah, it's your fault. What do I do then? And, and this is a question I've been asked over and over again. And the answer is really obvious, right? When you say, hey, team, this went wrong and it's my fault. And your team says, yeah, I know. You say, yeah, yeah, that's what I just said. Yes, it is my fault. I'm not just saying that so you guys will leave me alone. I'm saying it's my fault because it truly is my fault because I'm the leader. Here's the mistakes that I made and here's what I'm going to do to fix them. So, all these simple problems, and I shouldn't say simple, all these problems that lead, because leadership is very complex. It's very nuanced. You have to be, that's another analogy that I make in the, in the book is explaining to people that it's like being a woodworker and different people are like different pieces of wood, different types of wood. You know, you get a piece of pine that's really soft or a piece of oak that's really hard. And yet you still, as a woodworker, have to know how to use, uh, you know, how to use various tools and how much pressure it takes with those various tools, with those different types of wood. And then within different pieces of oak, different pieces of oak have different warps to them. They have knots in them that are different. So even each individual piece of wood is different. And that's what being a leader is like. You have to learn the tools and then you have to learn how to, how to modulate those tools properly so that they're being used in the correct manner. So that's what this book is out about. And I think it's really going to help a lot of people in their day-to-day -day leadership lives. Yeah. 
Totally agreed. Totally agreed. Well, this is, uh, I mean, again, awesome book. I think I've read all, uh, pretty much everything you put out there, but this is definitely my favorite of everything. It's just, it's fantastic. So yeah, way to go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, before we get out of here, just a couple more quick questions. We have a section of the show. We're going to tweak it just slightly maybe, but uh, it is called our world famous. Famous for. This is the part of the show where we ask the same four questions every single week to every guest we bring on the show here. And we're going to fire them at you right now. But before we do, let's hear what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast with Jay Scott. Hey there, Brandon and Bigger Pockets podcast listeners. This is Jay Scott, your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. This week on the Business Podcast, we have somebody that Brandon Turner is a big fan of. His name is Cameron Harold, and he's author of a book called Vivid Vision. And in that book, he talks all about how we can create the vision for our business, whether it be an investing business or any kind of business, and how we can hold ourselves accountable for achieving our goals. And I know, Brandon, you've used Vivid Vision to build your mobile home park business. So definitely tune in this week and check out this awesome interview. Now, back to your famous four. All right. Now, let's get to the famous four. So the first question we usually ask here, Jocko, is, and I'm not sure if you have one or not, that's why we may tweak it slightly, but real estate book. Is there a real estate book that you have read that's made an impact on your life or a favorite real estate book? And the next book is about business or the next question is about business books. Uh, So I'm wondering, first of all, is there a real estate book, anything that comes to mind that you've read? And if not, I'm going to go to the leadership question. Is there a leadership book you've read that's made a big impact? Yeah, the leadership book that I've read is a book called About Face, and it's actually not a leadership book. It's a book uh, written by a guy named Colonel David Hackworth. And this book is about his experiences at the tail end of war, just after World War II, when he joined the army, he served in Korea and he served in Vietnam. And it's about his experiences as a leader in all those situations. It's a massive book. It's over 800 pages long. It's, it doesn't talk about leadership directly, but it is an incredible leadership guide because it explains all these things that he went through as a leader. So it's about face by Colonel David Hackworth. Awesome. Beautiful. Do you have a favorite business book? You know, I, I don't really read a lot of business books. And, and as you know, from my podcast, I read a ton of books, but just about every book that I read is a military book and, or it's about some sort of atrocity that's unfolded in the world. Because for me, being a leader means trying to understand human nature And the best way to understand human nature is to see human nature when it is most revealed. And in my opinion, human nature is most revealed in very trying situations such as, you know, whether it's a a combat scenario or whether it's some kind of atrocity like a genocide or something like that. That's where I think human nature gets revealed. So that's why the books that I read are about war. That's a powerful Uh point that you don't need to read a business book to be really good at business. You have to understand people. And that, I mean, so you could really substitute business with, you know, being good at people and no matter what you do, you're going to do well. I really like that. Can you share with us a couple of your, your hobbies? I do jujitsu. That's my, my main hobby is Brazilian jujitsu. And uh, I actually own a gym in San Diego, California, a big mixed martial arts gym. So that's my primary hobby followed up probably by surfing. So I live in San Diego, California and surf. And then I play guitar, but I'm not very good. That's awesome because I play guitar and I surf, but, uh, and I'm going to start jujitsu. So here's a question for you on the jujitsu thing. 
uh, completely unrelated to anything we're talking about today. Is this going to so, be the question you're always asking me? I'm so glad you're going to ask Jocko. No, and, I don't oh, think okay. I'm going to ask you. No, no, no. Here's my thing. So I've got, I've for six months now, I've been saying I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to the local place. And there's a small gym here or a dojo. Is that the right terminology? I don't know, but whatever. Okay. So there's a small place here and I have not yet gone in. And when I really think of why I haven't done it yet, it's fear that I have no idea what to expect the first time. Because I don't know anybody. I'm usually like if I had a friend here who was like, let's go together, Brandon. I've been going for a while. I'd be like, yeah, this is great. But I don't know what to expect. I'm just a little bit terrified. What do I expect that first time? Like, what do I do? Jiu-jitsu, and I can't put a blanket statement on all jujitsu people, but jujitsu sure. is actually a, a pretty cool, chill, relaxed community where people like to train. And it, you showing up there, you said you're six five, you're tall, you're lanky. Like if you walked into my gym, I'd be stoked because that's a rare body type, and so it means we get to train with someone that's got a rare body type, which is going to improve our games. But you know what? They're going to introduce you to jujitsu. Hey, look, you're going to get choked out which is not, you know, you're going to get, they're going to choke you and you're going to tap and then you're going to let go and you're like, wow, that was awesome. How did you do that? And then they're going to show you how they <laughs> did it. And then you're going to try and stop what they did, but they're just going to do something else. And you're going to say, wait, why, how did you do that? And they're going to show you how they did it. And then you're going to say, oh, cool. And you'll stop that. And then they'll do something else. And you'll realize that you have entered this incredibly complex game of chess with the human body and you will become addicted to it because it is a very, very fun, challenging, and mind-altering thing. It actually changes the way you think about the world. So just, you know what you need to do is you basically need to shut up, go to the gym, and start training. <laughs> there it <laughs> is. All right, all right, I'm, doing it, I'm doing it with it today. Today is we're recording this on Thursday. So, all right, I'm doing it on uh, Monday. I'll be there. They're, they're Monday through Thursday, so we'll do it. Uh, post a picture on, you know, on social media and tag me so I can see that you're there. All right. Otherwise, I will. you're in. Where, where, what <laughs> state are you in? Uh, I'm in Maui, Hawaii. Oh yeah, I got friends there. They'll come and get you. <laughs> okay, good, good. That's what I need. All right. If you want, Brandon, let me know, and I'll fly out there. We could go together. I bet you would. I bet. Yeah, I can. I can handle this. You know, I'm not that terrified. You know, I'm just trying to, trying to be a good friend. I'll do it. <laughs> Answer your question, jerk. All right. Last question from me, Jacko. What do you think separates successful business owners, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, whatever, successful people in business from everyone else? If you had to really narrow it down to, to one or two things, what separates successful from the not? Hard work. Great. Amen. Amen. Hard work. I, I, can, <laughs> I can promise you I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not the best athlete in the world. I, I'm a hard worker, though. And I think that hard work is the, is the number one thing that, that you, that you have to do. And if you think you're not going to have to work hard mm. to be successful, it's going to be a rough awakening, you know, cause it, you're going to have to work hard. That's the way it is. Yeah. I, I, that's a really good point. I want to just, it's the expectation of what hard work is, right? So I heard this really good example of two people took the same flight. One of them was told, this is going to be full of turbulence. It's going to be raining and dangerous the entire time. There's going to be no food service. You're going to be exhausted by the time you get to your destination, but it's okay. You'll get there safely. And the other one was told, this is going to be like a five-star gourmet meals. You're going to be able to lay out and sleep. And it's going to be beautiful. The, the flight attendants are the most amazing in the world. 
And then each of them got on the same flight, which was just a regular flight from wherever they were going. And you can imagine how the two attitudes of the people impacted the experience they had, even though they had the exact same experience, you know? So if you're expecting it to be hard, when it's hard, you'll like it. You came prepared for that. You're, oh, good. They have weights here. That's what I wanted. I'm going to get stronger. But if you weren't expecting it to be hard, you will come up with a million excuses and you'll feel like it's unfair and it will feel even harder than it is. So I'm, I love that you point, you, you said a lot quicker than I did, but it's a very good point. <laughs> Uh, Those are facts, man. It's all true. Last question of the day. Can you tell us where people can find out more about you? Well, uh, you know, my podcast, Jocko Podcast, you can find out all about me because there's thousands, well, not thousands, several hundred hours of me talking. The books I've written, you know, I've written a bunch of books. We've talked about them today. And um, so JockoPodcast.com is my podcast. My, my consulting company is called Echelon Front. That's echelonfront.com. I'm on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Jocko Willinkin. If you if you want to contact me, usually Twitter is the best one for me to see and respond to, but I look at all of them. So awesome. All right. Very cool. Well, Jocko, this has been fantastic. I mean, just really, really, really good. I hope everyone goes out and reads everything you've ever written and listens to your show as well and subscribes and rates and reviews your show all over iTunes because I know that helps. So again, thank you for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. It was our pleasure. Thank you, Jocko. And that was our interview with Jocko. Man, that was incredible, intense, and amazing, just like I knew it would be because this guy just delivers fire every time I hear him talk. He does not disappoint, does he? I was telling Jocko when we got done, I don't think I've ever heard him give a bad interview. He just does such a good job with everything he does. And of course, you're not surprised because Jocko always does that. But I am... I am so excited that other people get to hear the message that made such a big impact on on my own success, frankly, yeah. because this is what most of the people that Brandon and I bump into who are having trouble meeting their goals need to hear. I mean, he was on like Joe Rogan's podcast with like uh, what was a, a, Tul- a Tulsi Gabbard, like running for president. Like he was on with a presidential nominee or is that what you call him? Presidential nominee. Anyway, like Jocko's big time. So just to have him on the show was pretty amazing. I uh, yeah, he's a rock star. Yeah, this was great. I mean, I'm so glad that people got to hear the message that Jocko has to give, because in my opinion, it's what it's the medicine that the world we're in right now today needs. So big shout out to both Adam Dobbins and Mike Velez, who were crucial in getting Jocko in front of us so we could get him on the episode. Uh, I'm really grateful for you guys and the work that you put in. Yeah, very, very, very big thanks to all you guys. And uh, that's all I got. So let's get out of here. Uh, David, you want to take us out? This is uh, David Green for Brandon, future Brazilian jiu-jitsu Turner, signing off. <laughs> You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? 
Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.